Well, good morning, Summit Church and all of our campuses on what has to be my favorite Sunday of the year, Time Change Sunday. Uh, my only problem with this Sunday is that it, uh, I have a bunch of clocks in my house because I'm a clock person, and so it takes me like half a day uh, to figure out how to get them all reset. But anyway, I am very excited about being here and good to see some of you who normally come to a later service, who came to this one thinking that you were coming to the later service and just learned about Time Change just a few moments ago. Um, we are, Summit family, we are, um, over the last couple of years, we have been on a journey together that we have called Multiply. It is multiply is how financially we offer ourselves to what we see God doing here in and through us as a church. Multiply began with the conviction that God generously gives to us all the things that he gives us, not just so we can enrich our lives through them, but so that we can sow them back into his kingdom so that they will multiply um, for the kingdom, both in our lives as well as um, our community around us. We have always said that our primary goal with multiply is not to raise a certain amount of money, but it is to see 100% of our people engaged in the mission of God here. Uh, the reason I say that is because um, in many ways, churches like ours are kind of like a, a college football game, I've heard uh, it said that, you know, in a college football game, you've usually got 22 guys in desperate need of rest, surrounded by 22,000 in desperate need of exercise. Uh, that's a little bit of how the Summit Church works, and that you got a, a handful of people that are really involved, and a bunch of people who come to watch them be involved, and we want all of you to be involved in the mission of God, not because God needs money. We don't do this because we're trying to raise a certain amount of money for God. God doesn't have needs like that, but we know that as God's people, this is how God works in the world. When we, when we, his people, offer the first and the best of all that he has given us back to God, then God multiplies that for his kingdom in and through us. And so over the next few weeks, you're going to hear about some of the specific ways that God has used multiply to grow this church um, over the last few years and used us to reach people. And then you're going to hear some of what we believe God has planned for us in the, in the coming months and years. And let me just comment really quickly on the video that you, you, you saw, um, because some of you have a unique opportunity to multiply your lives this very week. Um, on Monday um, night, October, uh, November 6th, we're going to have interest meetings for two of our coming church plants for the year. One is in Austin, Texas, and one in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, those are the locations of the church plants, by the way, not the interest meetings. The interest meetings are here, uh, but the church plants are in Austin and Charlottesville. So far in the lifetime of this church, we have sent out 448 of our members to be a part of one of these church plants. Um, that's only counting the ones we've sent out to domestic church plants, not counting international. Um, for every one of those um, members that we've sent out, there are now 20 new people that are worshiping uh, in uh, one of these church plants. And so it's a really good investment for us. I would like to see us. Thank you. I would love to see us get to 500 this year. And so uh, I'd love uh, for you to come out and check this out. This is not just for us as ministry people, by the way, for those of you who feel called to ministry. Uh, if you're a professional, if you are a student, um, if you're a, a young family, for those of you that are entering into retirement, uh, whoever you are in whatever situation, this is for you. Uh, you know, we always say that, that lots of factors go into where you choose to pursue your career, right? where you wanna live, where you can make money, where your family lives, and those are all fine. But why not let the largest of all the factors in where you choose to pursue your career, why not let the largest of those factors be where God can use you strategically in his kingdom? Um, why not let that be the largest shaping factor in your life? I, I read um, earlier that, uh, and this is the reason we plant churches, for every, <clears throat> um, when you have a new church plant, it takes three people to win one person to Christ. 
When the church becomes more than two years old, that number goes to seven. It takes seven people in a church two years old or older um, to win one person to Christ. And when you cross the 10-year mark, um, you go to 95. 95. It takes 95 members to win one person to Christ. Uh, and so some of you have a chance to be a part of something that is really exciting to be on the cutting edge of ministry. Uh, you say, well, J.D., I love this church. We love you too, but it is time for you to go, okay? And so some of you, um, this is what God is doing in your life. And I just want to invite you to come to this interest meeting and learn about what's going on and how you might be impacted personally, Okay. We've got your Bibles this weekend, and I hope that you have them. I want you to take them out and open them to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, I hope you have your Bible. We always say we are a BYOB church. Uh, that's bring your own Bible. And you say, but JD, you always put it up on the screen for us, so I don't have to bring it. I know, and I have a guilty conscience about putting it up there because I'm afraid that you won't bring your Bible. But my goal as a pastor is not to just teach you the Bible, but it's to teach you how to study the Bible. And that works so much better when you got your own Bible. So BYOB, Every weekend, um, we are almost here at the end of our series on the book of Galatians. We've been studying the book of Galatians now for seven weeks, um, and that is because October 31st of this year marks the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, which was started by a German monk named Martin Luther, and Galatians was his favorite book in the Bible. He said that if Galatians were a woman, then he would have married the book of Galatians. And so we've been studying it as we commemorate the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. And so we come now <clears throat> to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, which are Paul's final thoughts that he is going to give to the Galatians. I, at the beginning of this series, I, I explained to you that every pastor ha has a speaking style, and that usually kind of determines we open our sermons the same way, and a lot of times we'll have a unique way that we try to end the sermons. I know some pastors that seem to like to end their sermons by revving up the audience and trying to get them to an applause line, kind of a drop the mic moment. Uh, I, when I was um, going to youth camp as a student, it seemed like the youth speakers there always like to um, they always like to tell an emotional story at the end that got everybody crying, so we'd all come forward and promise to be missionaries. Um, I, there was a worship leader I worked with one time at a college uh, conference that I did that he just loved to end every worship set by just coming to a point where he kind of lost control and he'd jump around. And um, I was getting, it was one session I was about to speak, and he works everybody up to this kind of thing. And he goes up on his toes playing the last you know, part of the song, and then he holds his, his guitar up, and then he just falls backwards. And it was kind of like, well, not a little awkward. It was a lot awkward because all the other instrumentalists are kind of looking at him and the drummer, all you can hear is the drummer going, you know, kind of playing the, and, he, and we just, and the guy in the conference looks at me and he goes, it was after about 10 seconds, he said, bro, I don't know what to tell you. You're up next on the schedule. So this one's on you. <laughs> so I walk up and I literally have to um, like step over him. I can see he's fine, but you know, I, I have to step over him and go start the message. And then, uh, you know, about 10 minutes in the message, he gets up and picks up his guitar and, 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 and we go on. Well, Paul has his own particular type of preaching style. And um, when Paul gets to the end of one of his sermons, which that's the way you should read a letter is like one long sermon that Paul is preaching. Um, Paul's habit at the end of the sermon is to rattle off a litany of really practical instructions. And at first, these instructions seem like a bunch of random standalone proverbs, as if he's saying, oh yeah, remember this, and oh yeah, you should do that. But they're not really random at all. These things are the practical outworkings of the gospel that he's explained now for five chapters. You see, here's the thing to remember about Paul. Anytime you read anything written by Paul, you keep this in mind. For Paul, imperatives 
always flow out of indicatives. And you're like, imperadica, what, what are you talking about? All right, indicatives are declarative statements about what God has done. Imperatives are commands about what you should do. So for Paul, the commands of what you should do come out of a response to what God has done. Right? So that's how you always should see Paul. Paul is going to say, here's what God has done. Here's the indicative. Now, here is what you should do in response. That's why Paul often signals that transition by the word, therefore. Therefore, in light of all that I just said to you about the gospel, here's how you should live in response. And that's why every good Bible teacher will tell you that whenever you see the word, therefore, in Paul's letters, you should always look and see what it's Therefore, exactly right, you're looking backwards because what is the indicative that is grounding the imperative? Because before you undertake the imperative, you gotta make sure you got a really good hold on the indicative. Otherwise, you're gonna turn that list of imperatives into a list of moral do's and don'ts, and that will lead you to something that Paul calls legalism, or we call legalism, um, which is just where you're trying to obey a bunch of commands, and that is the opposite of what Paul is wanting to you to wanting you to do. The imperatives of the Christian life grow as a natural response to the indicatives, the statements about what God has done. Paul is urging us now in chapter six to respond to the gospel that he has explained now for five chapters. The last, one of the third part of the gospel prayer that I gave you, given to you a few times in this series, I gave it to you again last weekend. The third line of the gospel prayer is this: As you've been to me, so I will be to others. Here's your indicative. This is what God has done. God has done something to me in the gospel. Now, in response to that, here's my imperative. This is how I want to be to others. Chapter six is Paul unpacking that very concept. We're going to start our reading of chapter six at the end of chapter five, though, because um, the last two verses of chapter five, in my opinion, are where he starts the instructions of chapter six. He starts it like this. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit has created a new reality for us in the gospel, and that reality comes with it, the power of a new creation and the power of resurrection. But in order for you to access that power, you got to walk in a way that is consistent with what the Spirit is doing. It's the only way you'll have access to the power. So therefore, he says, let us not become conceited, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That word conceited there is a very important word. It is one of the few places in our Bible that we unfortunately don't have the right English word that translates the Greek word. We just don't have one. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, actually, the closest we get is if you have the old King James version of the Bible. That's what I grew up on. And uh, there's a lot of words in it I did not understand. But in this place, the KJV actually gets it exactly right. Uh, but in order to do that, they had to make up an English word. And the word they use is vainglory. Um, vainglory uh, is the, what the word in Greek literally means is empty of glory. If you become a person who is empty of glory, then you are going to become a person who provokes and envies one another. Remember what Paul has explained to us. You and I were created for the glory of God. We were created to be complete in God. We were created so that God's love and acceptance was our glory. Literally every part of you, whether you're a Christian or not, every part of you, just because of the way you're created, cries out for you to hear from God the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Well, when you and I sinned, we were stripped of the love and the acceptance of God. And when we were stripped of that love and acceptance, that glory, we felt naked and ashamed. So we immediately turn and begin to look to replace that glory with something else. It's like we walk around with this big old glory hole in our hearts, big glory vacuum, and we're always looking for something to replace what we lost in God. And one of the main ways that we do that, that we try to replace that glory, is we do it by comparing ourselves to one another. We, we, we try to show that we are better than other people in some way, and that becomes our glory. And that manifests itself in two different ways in this verse. The first way here is provoking one another. Provoking is when you have a superiority complex toward others, and you just feel like you are better than them for some reason. Maybe you are smarter, or you are prettier, or you are richer, or you are more moral, or I guess that's how you would say that, moraler. Um, you're gooder in English than they are. Um, you're more talented. You've got a better family. But there's something that makes you better. And so you look down on them and you provoke them. Envying is the opposite side of the coin. When you envy others, it's because you have an inferiority complex. Because when you compare yourself to others, you don't match up. And so you resent that. What the provoking and the envying, what the superiority complex and the inferiority complex have in common is that you enter into relationships from a sense of emptiness. You need glory from other people. Well, the gospel does three things, Paul says, that transforms your relationships. The first thing it does is it humbles you. It teaches you that there really is nothing about you that makes you better than somebody else. Everything you have is a gift of grace. Secondly, it completes you. You don't need glory or distinction from other people because you have the approval of the heavenly father. And then it redirects you rather than being a person who is focused on using others to meet your needs. You become a complete person who offers yourself to meet the needs of others. You see, before the gospel, you approach every relationship from, let's call it a market standpoint. How can this relationship benefit me? How can this person help me fulfill my goals or the goals of my family? With every person you meet, you got a little plus and minus chart in your head and you're asking yourself, is this person gonna add more to me than they're going to take away? What can they do for me and my family? That's how you evaluate relationships. All right, watch how those things show up in this litany of instructions. If you've been experienced the gospel, you'll be humbled, you'll be complete, and you'll be redirected. Watch them show up in these next few verses here as we go through this. Brothers and sisters, if somebody is overtaken in a wrongdoing, what we have here is somebody who's fallen into sin, right, really messed themselves up. You who are spiritual, now who's he talking about? Does it mean the Christians who walk around with a sanctified look on their face? No. Um, spiritual just means you have the spirit. That's all he means there. So it's any Christian. You who have the spirit, restore. That's the Greek word katartizo, which means put a broken bone back in place. Restore such a person with a gentle or humble proutos spirit. Watching out for yourselves because you're made out of the same stuff they are. And you don't want to also be tempted as you get into this. How does a gospel saturated person respond to somebody in sin? Paul's answer, they approach them with empathy and compassion, knowing that they're made out of the same stuff that that person is. And the fact that they haven't been overcome by this particular temptation is not because they're better than them. It's, if anything, it's because they've been spared the set of circumstances that that person was in. Had you grown up like them or you've been put through the same temptations, you probably would have made the same dumb decisions that they made. You see, the gospel teaches you that any righteousness that you have, any righteousness that you have is a gift. Thus, when I'm around somebody who has fallen, I approach them humbly because I too am a wretched, dark-hearted sinner just like them. 
Any righteousness I have is a gift. That's what the gospel teaches me about myself. And it changes the attitude that I have to somebody whose life is messed up. A person who doesn't know the gospel assumes that their righteousness is something that they have achieved. So they feel conceited and proud. They have a glory from that. And so they back away from that other person. And they don't get involved in the life of somebody who's messed up because they think, why would I encumber myself with your mess? I mean, the reason I'm not in a mess is because I made good decisions. And so if I'm not in a mess because I made good decisions, I'm not going to bring your mess into my life because I spent my whole life trying to get out of mess. Which leads me to the next verse. Verse 2, Paul says, carry one another's burdens in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in context, the burden that he's talking about here is the burden that comes to somebody because of their own sinful, dumb choices. And Paul says, if you get the gospel, you will voluntarily enter into the burdens of others, burdens that they brought onto themselves by their own sinfulness. You see, which addresses one of the primary reasons Christians use or excuses we use for not getting involved with other people who are suffering and in need. Jonathan Edwards, the um, 300 years ago, in a little book called The Duty of Christian Charity, identified the primary reasons that Christians excuse themselves from getting involved in the needs of others. The number one reason, he said, the number one reason still relevant today is he says, Christians will say, nope, I don't want to help somebody in need, that kind of need, because they brought that on themselves. They made a dumb decision. They brought that on themselves. So I feel no compulsion to go help them. Jonathan Edwards' response was, do you not know the gospel at all? Do you realize the misery that Christ brought you out of, a misery that you had brought on yourselves in entirety? I mean, you know the golden rule, right? The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Here, Paul is upgrading that to the platinum rule, right? He didn't call it platinum rule, but I'm gonna call it that. Platinum rule is do unto others as Christ has done unto you. You know what Christ did when he saved you. You know how far he reached. It was a burden that you had brought on yourself, So why wouldn't you reach out to somebody even when they brought on the burden on themselves? Because when you do that, then you're going to start, you're going to start fulfilling the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is that you do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. And that means voluntarily entering into their burdens, just like Jesus entered into yours. So let me just ask you a little diagnostic question right now. Okay. I want you to think about the burdens in your life that you are carrying right now. And I want you to ask yourself, how many of those burdens come from carrying the burden of somebody else? How much of the burden and the weight that you feel under this morning, how much of it comes from somebody else's burden that you have voluntarily entered into and shared? Isn't that what Paul is telling us to do? Carry each other's burdens? I mean, think about the metaphor. On this table, if I were carrying this table and you were gonna help me, how much does this table weigh? Like what, 350 pounds? Um, And so if we were gonna carry it together, um, what I would do is I would turn it on its side so that now the weight would be distributed so that I would carry 175 and you would carry 175. That's how we would do that. And some of the weight that I was carrying would now rest upon you. In other words, in order to help me, some of that burden has to fall on you. The reason I take pains to point this out is most of us want to give to others without it really costing us. We want to give to others without feeling the burden, but that is not what people who have experienced the gospel should be like. Jonathan Edwards said the second reason, the second excuse Christians give for why they don't help others in need is they say, I don't really have any excess and I really couldn't give to that person in need without experiencing hardship myself. 
And where it says, isn't that exactly what Paul is telling us to do in Galatians 6 too, is to experience hardship because of how much we give? To give to a point that some of the burden of those in need actually falls on us? Isn't that what it means to share the burden? That's why C.S. Lewis said the only safe rule in giving, if you want a rule, the rule is not 10%. If you want a safe rule in giving, it's to give more than you feel like you can spare. Because only then will you be sharing the burden that somebody else is feeling, and only then are you fulfilling the law of Christ. A conceited person who has forgotten the gospel thinks, oh, I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps, you ought to do the same. I, 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 in fact, I've spent my life trying to get myself to a place where I have no burdens. I have earned this position of privilege, and I'm certainly not going to encumber myself with the burdens that you have brought on your stuff. They're conceited, unaware of the great need that they had when Christ saved them. Right? When you know Jesus, you voluntarily begin to bear the burdens of others. Now, there are, of course, other ways to apply this principle beyond the financial. You can do it with people emotionally, hurting when they hurt, making their concerns matters of personal prayer, um, where, you know, I know the difference when somebody has given me a perfunctory, I'll pray for you, brother, and when they actually are taking some of this burden and they're following up with me about it and they're praying for it and treating it like it's their own burden, it means trying to shoulder the load with people around you in really practical ways, simple as sometimes taking them meals when they're going through a difficult time or watching over their kids when they, um, when they need that, or um, how about this one? Uh, helping people move. I hate moving. Everybody hates moving. Um, I don't even like helping other people move. I mean, no you know, offense, but that is a time that we literally bear one another's burdens. If you're in a Christian community, you should expect and not resent when people ask you to help them move. And by the way, if you have a truck, I would advise you to conceal that fact. Otherwise, everybody in the church and random strangers you meet in the mall are going to ask you to help them move. But the point is, you just, you voluntarily begin to share burdens around you. Let me apply this principle in one other way that I think is very timely for us. Um, and if I could, uh, if you will indulge me to speak as a white guy, um, to those of you in, who are listening to me who also are white, um, I believe this is one of the major things that we need to do in situations of racial tension. And that is to make every effort to bear the burdens that are borne by some of our brothers and sisters of color, burdens we may never have had to experience personally. You know, as we've often talked about here at this church, it is easy for any of us not to think about things that don't affect us directly. But if we are gospel people, we will be aware of the pain that others are going through and aware of the privileges that we experience that others don't have access to. And we will use any position of privilege or strength that we enjoy in order to serve and empower others. We will spend time listening and trying to see and understand things from their perspective. Because isn't that the first part of bearing a burden is to listen? Listening is the first stage in sharing or, or bearing a burden. So we ought to realize that when it comes to things like, you know, controversial things like kneeling for the flag, for example, or, or even protesting or rioting after a, a shooting, that others often feel like they do because of experiences that they have had. And to be frank, had you or I grown up in their situation, we'd probably feel the same way. That is not saying that they are all right and you are all wrong. It's just saying that you should realize that your perspective on those things is largely an opinion that has been formed out of your own experiences. And that's all that it is, an opinion. We should listen to others in our community, trying as much as we can to see it from their perspective and as much as we can, sharing the burdens that they live with as if they were our own. In fact, if you're writing stuff down, write this down. We are called to share the burdens our brothers and sisters live with as if they were our own. 
for the majority culture, this is the beginning of progress and a lot of this racial strife. I know that is not all that needs to be said on this. I get that. But I know that it is something that we can do. It is something that Galatians is telling us to do. By the way, maybe the first place this will show up is on your Facebook wall. Can I suggest a verse that you should probably put at the top of your computer? Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. For many of you, this, this summarizes your entire approach to Facebook right here. Right, I'm not looking to understand. I'm just looking to show the world how smart I am because of what I feel in this particular moment. All right, spare us that and spend more time trying to understand than simply to tell everybody how smart you are. Right? I mean, make this your screensaver or something because there's so much division that gets caused by people not understanding, but just trying to vent whatever they're feeling in a particular moment. I'm not saying you never post your opinion. I'm just saying that for every one comment you make telling yours, you're asking two questions that help you understand somebody else's. All right. Well, Paul keeps developing this point. Look at this, verse three. For if anybody considers himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now, now what's he talking about? He's still going after this issue of being conceited. He's like, do you really feel like you're something? Do you not know the gospel at all? Do you remember who you were when God saved you? You were dead in trespasses and sin, not mostly dead or nearly dead or really, really sick. You were dead, dead. You were children of wrath. You weren't a not so bad sinner or a sinner who had a good heart or sinner with a lot of potential. God did not look at you and say, oh, there's still some good in that one. I think I can save him. That's Star Wars. That's not the gospel. There's only one kind of sinner according to the gospel, and that is wretched, dark-hearted, spiritually dead sinners. In fact, you were so bad that Jesus had to die to save you. By the way, make sure you get that. Not other people were so bad that Jesus had to die for them. He didn't come to earth and say, you know what? There are some people that are so bad, I can only save them if I die for them. You, I just had to sprain my ankle for you, but somebody else, I had to die for them. No, you were so, just you by yourself was so bad that the son of God had to spill his precious blood to redeem your soul from the hell that you deserved. And if you forget that, then you'll think you're something when you're actually a big old nothing and then you're going to be self-deceived. And when you're self-deceived, you'll become conceited. And then you'll become ungenerous toward others. And you'll relate to them wrongly when they go through a time of need or when they're under a burden that's brought on by their sinfulness. Verse 4, he keeps going, let each person examine his own work. And then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with somebody else. For each person will have to carry his own load. You're like, what? I mean, doesn't that sound like he just contradicted everything he just said? Now, how many of you noticed, how many of you noticed that contradiction when you were reading it earlier? I mean, be honest. How many of you just skimmed right over it because you're not really reading it and paying attention? You're just reading it. See, this is what I'm talking about. You got to see this kind of stuff and be like, I feel like he just contradicted himself. It looks like that on the surface, but not when you understand the context. The context, listen, he's still going after this idea of being conceited. And he is saying it is foolish of you to feel proud that you're not struggling with something when somebody else is. Because each of us have been given a different size load to carry. And the fact that somebody else is struggling with something that you're not struggling with is not because you are just inherently awesomer than they are. It's because the situation of their life and the circumstances that they were in were different. It was a different load. And you know what? Had you been under the same load, you probably would have struggled the same way that they did because all the righteousness that you have is a gift from God anyway. And had you been given the same load that person was given, then you probably would struggle with it too. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Sometimes in the church, you encounter people who are just especially difficult, right? Can you want to say amen to that? 
You want to kind of look at somebody right now who you're probably thinking about? Uh, around here, we call these EGR people, extra grace required. You know who you are, okay? Um, and they're the kind of people that you're like, oh, you know, and, and honestly, a part of you, just, you know, just putting us here, you're kind of like, um, you're like, yeah, I kind of wish they would move out of my social circle and get some other friends, or I kind of wish they would go to another church even because then I wouldn't have to spend so much time on this. And he, here's what helps me to think about this. Um, there are some issues that I've never had to deal with because, let's just use one example, kind of home I grew up in. I grew up with a mom and dad who loved each other. I always felt secure in my home. I never had to deal with abuse. I never developed real significant trust issues because I grew up in a context of security. And so I brought that into my experience. That's the load that I had to bury, and it wasn't that heavy of one in that context. And the fact that somebody else in a situation has severe trust issues might have to do with the fact that they've had a different load than I have. And the fact that they're struggling with that doesn't mean they're inherently a worse person than me. It just means that they were given a heavier load than I was given to bear. And that heavier load has nothing to do with them being worse or better. It has to do with God's grace in my life. And if God has been gracious to me, then, then, then who am I to look at them and say, you know what, I'm just better than you and I don't want to mess with your problem because I was absolutely nothing when Jesus entered into the hell of my life and he saved me. And if Jesus did that for me, then it just changes how I'm going to approach somebody else. So see, here we are in these first few verses, Paul has just walked us through how the gospel reshapes how we approach broken and needy people. The measure with which you understand the gospel is shown by how well you relate to broken and needy people. If you are conceited, you look disdainfully toward people who struggle with sin because you think that your good life came primarily from good choices you made because you were just inherently awesome. If you are conceited, you move away from people in need because you don't live in the awareness of how much need you were in when Jesus got involved with you. If you're conceited, you approach every relationship from a market standpoint where you're always asking, what am I going to get out of this? Is this person going to add value to my life or to my um, family's life? Is it going to cost me too much to get involved? Conceited people are basically on a hunt for those whose lives are not a mess so that they can help us fulfill our goals for our lives. Or by the way, in a little sick twist here, sometimes conceited people like to be around people whose lives are a mess because it makes them feel good about being that person's savior. Their personal neediness is shown by how much they need to be needed. And that's why they get mad when, when, when they're not appreciated or they get depressed when they're not really needed or the center of attention. On the surface, they look like they're serving others, but they're actually using other people. Gospel people do the opposite of all these things. They approach people with humility. You're not different than me. Um, they approach with compassion and empathy because they realize we're made out of the same stuff and Jesus died for us both. They're eager to share each other's burdens because Jesus shared our burden. That's what Jesus did for us. And I can't experience that without it transforming how I see you. You see, I read something this week that I, I just thought was, I never, it was about the temple and I never realized this. But, um, you know, the temple, um, the Jewish temple, God laid out every single detail exactly the way that he wanted it. I mean, the, the dimensions, where the furniture goes, what the furniture looked like. Um, at the center of the temple um, was um, nothing but a gold slab. And on that gold slab is where they offered sacrifices. And that so sacrifices gave us a picture of what God would do for us one day. Now, Jewish people believed that that, um, that, that's, uh, that temple was the center of their relationship with God. They also believed it was the center of creation. They thought that the temple sat on the original side of the Garden of Eden, and they thought that it was really the center of the universe. So I want you to get this. At the center of creation, at the center of the universe, at the center of reality is nothing but a gold slab 
where God was going to offer his life for ours. And what that means is that the center of our lives then begins to come, become, how am I going to offer my life for others? If you have experienced the gospel, the center of your life begins to rotate around this idea, my life for yours. A conceited person reverses that and says, your life for mine. Every single moment of every day, you are living according to one of these two principles, your life for mine or my life for yours. Even in as simple a thing as parenting decisions. You parents know what it's like to have a great plan for your evening and then your child gets sick, your child has a meltdown and you got to rethink your whole evening. And in that moment, you got a choice. I can either yell about how much my kid is an inconvenience and, 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 and stick to my plan, or I can devote my attention that I need to devote to my child. If you do the latter, then your child grows up secure, understanding the love of God. If you do the former and you just rearrange them like an you know, inconvenient accessory to your life, then they grow up broken and needy and they perpetuate that. Every moment of every day, you have a choice to live either the Jesus way or the self way, the conceited way, which is your life for mine, or the Jesus way, which is my life for yours. Now, finally, Paul turns to the subject of giving. We're going to spend more time on this in a few weeks, but let me just address it really briefly here. Verse 6, he says, let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Um, by the way, I just want to say, you guys at the Summit Church do such a good job at this. Your pastoral team so, feels so very well taken care of. I hear this over and over again. But I've, he's talking about more here than just notes of encouragement and, you know, gift cards to, you know, Outback or whatever. He, he's talking about a lot more. Here, here's what he's talking about. Um, share. Our word share is, is a common theme that runs through this chapter. There's a difference in sharing and giving. Giving, the difference in sharing and giving is the word Commitment. Because when you give to something, you can be like, hey, you know what? I paid my dues. I've given the money that I'm supposed to give. Now I need you to go and do the work of the ministry. But when you share in the ministry, you have taken ownership of it. And you say, this church's mission is my mission. And I actually bear some of the burden. And I'm willing to do whatever God asks of me to see that mission multiply and to see that vision accomplished. You are committed. I've heard it described as the difference between how the pig and the chicken contribute to your breakfast. If you eat a plate of eggs and bacon for breakfast, well, the chicken made a contribution, but the pig was committed, right? The pig went all in. And what Paul is saying is we don't want chickens in the church, we want pigs. Because we want people who actually take the burden and they own it and they say, I'm not just trying to give an offering, this mission is my mission. We do not want to be a church where the pastors have a vision for ministry and we try to get you to fund it. Because let me tell you this, God is not gonna hold me and your pastoral team um, accountable alone for reaching this community. That is something he has given to you. You are responsible for this community. You're responsible for your families. You are responsible for this generation of people all over the world. And yes, I am the leader of this church and me and the other pastors are trying to put forward a vision that compels us all and that what we rally around. But at the end of the day, it's gotta be your vision, not just mine. So I don't want you to fund the vision that God has given me. I want you to own the responsibility to multiply the gospel in the life of your family, the life of your friends, in our community, and around the world. 
And the reason this is so timely for us is we're coming up on the finish line of this chapter of Multiply. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be considering some of what God is doing in our church, what He has done, and what He has for us in the future, because this is a very critical moment for us in the life of our church and where God is taking us. And I want you to share in that. I don't want you to give to it. I want you to share in it. Because y'all, it has never, it has never been about raising money. That's why the primary and the secondary goal, I'll try to be clear with those. The secondary goal is the amount of money that we feel like we need. The primary goal is that you get involved heart and soul in the mission to multiply the gospel. I want you to see this church as the best means for you of accomplishing the commission that God has given to you to multiply the gospel and to carry it to your friends, your neighbors, and the nations. Now, he's going to say some really important stuff about giving in the next few verses, which we're going to cover next week, not now. But for right now, I just want to jump ahead to Paul's grand conclusion, because I want you to watch how he ties it all together. So we'll come back to the part I'm skipping, and, but let's just jump to the end. Uh, verse 11, look at what large letters I use as I write to you now in my own handwriting. Paul had somebody else write his uh, uh, letters for him, because evidently they say he had bad eyesight. So at the very end of this letter, Paul grabs the pen out of his hand. Th- think of this as the all caps moment. Uh, Paul's about to write in all caps. He's got the crayon and he's writing really big uh, because what he's about to say is super important to him. All right, all right. Those who want to boast in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. All that matters instead is a new creation. And that only comes from the power of resurrection. And that power of resurrection comes from the blood of the cross of a criminal and the empty tomb that he left behind. And I am not going to boast about anything. I'm not going to boast about the law. I'm not going to boast about my accomplishments. I'm not going to boast about my obedience. I'm not going to boast about my family. All I'm going to boast about is the bloody cross of Jesus and the empty tomb, because in that is the power of new creation. And that is all that you need. It's all I can commend to you. And it's all I want to leave you with. You see, some people, he says, a lot of people in your midst, he's saying to the Galatians, they boast about how well they keep the law. Oh, they've been circumcised. Oh, they keep all these commandments. He says, big deal. Others boast in how talented or beautiful they are. Some boast in how much they know. I don't boast in any of those things, he said. I only cling to the cross of Christ. And you may not think it's that important. In fact, it is so simple that a child can understand it and the world doesn't value it. Jesus was dismissed as a criminal. They think it's nothing. But in that message, that, 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 that simple message of the gospel is the wisdom and the glory of God and the power of life back from the dead, the power of new creation. And that power is greater than any technique, any knowledge, any ritual. It is stronger than the strongest power in the world. It is mightier than the mightiest fortress in the world. It is the very power of God in resurrection. Y'all, Martin Luther got this. A few weeks ago, I told you how Luther had rediscovered salvation by faith alone, and he was called to appear before the religious and the government authorities at the time. That's something that is called the Deed of Worms. And when he goes to the Deed of Worms, um, the religious, uh, the church was there, uh, the, uh, the representative of the Pope, a guy named Cardinal Cajetan, and the emperor, the, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was there. And they bring this little monk from an obscure place before him, and they said, Luther, your writings have caused quite a stir. You've got to quit saying that salvation is by faith alone. You've got to turn your back on this and you've got to get back to what we are teaching. 
And um, Luther is where he, he really wrestled and he just says, he finally looks at them and says, I can't, I can't do this because this is what God has said and I gotta stick with what God has said, not what you have said. Well, Cardinal Cogiton kept using a phrase with Luther. He kept saying, Luther, you know how this ends. If you don't recant, we're going to burn you at the stake. Just so you're aware of what's happening here. He said, Luther, you can get out of this. And the phrase he kept using this is with one little word. One little word. And the word in Latin was revoco. We would translate it as I recant. He said, you say one little word, one little three-syllable word, and you can walk out of here a free man and all this trouble goes away. And that's where Luther said, I can't, I cannot recant because I've got to stick with what God says. Well, immediately after this happens, um, uh, Luther is going home and the Holy Roman Empire emperor um, sits out a death warrant for Luther. And uh, that was when Luther's friends took him captive and hid him in uh, the castle of Wartburg. Uh, the castle of Wartburg was a, a German fortress that was one of the most impenetrable fortresses um, in all of Germany at the time. You can't really see it here. This is, I was there a few weeks ago with some of our church planners um, over there in Germany. And um, right here is this sheer rock wall face. And it's this incredible fortress. And as they take Luther into this fortress, he takes out a pen and he writes the words to a hymn that we still sing today called A Mighty Fortress as Our God. And here's what he says, and I want you to listen to this. He says, and though this world with devils filled will threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his grace to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. He is thinking about Cardinal Cajetan saying to him, one little word makes this go away. And what he looks at him in this hymn as he says is, you can keep your one little word that will set me free because I would rather have the mighty fortress of our God than I would all the fortresses of the Roman Empire and all the fortresses in all the world. That word of faith that I'm talking about, one little word, that word of faith has in it the very power of God. It is the power of new creation. It is the word that makes the sinner righteous. It makes the lame walk. It makes the blind see. It brings the dead back to life. It can release you from the powers of addiction. It can heal the wounds of years of abuse. It can scrape off the dead parts of your heart that have been hardened by a lifetime of selfishness. It can bring renewal to a heart that is dark and dead. It is the power of salvation to all who believe it. It gives hope to the hopeless. It turns tragedy into triumph. It makes you more than a conqueror through him who loves us. When you believe that one little word of the gospel, one little word, it releases in you the power of the spirit so much that not even the gates of hell can withstand us. So Martin Luther looks back at the cardinal and he says, you can keep your offer of safety. I'd rather have the fortress of God's promises than the fortresses of any earthly power. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still and he will win the battle. And see when it's all said and done, when it's all said and done, that's our boast. That's what we boast in. It's what I boast. I don't commend to you a bunch of principles for how to have a better family. I want you to have a better family. I'm not giving you 10 ways you can be successful in business. I want you to be successful in business. But what I center on, what I cling to, what I boast in is the gospel. It is one simple word of faith and the gospel releases in you the power of God. It is the mighty fortress of God's power. On Luther's deathbed, um, after he had died, his friends found him dead. They were sad because they didn't know what his last words were going to be. You think a great man like this needs some last words. Well, they were looking around and in his pocket, they'd found a little piece of paper that he'd scribbled just a handful of words on. 
And the last words that he wrote, what he commended to the world, just stop for a minute. What is, what is a man who's probably caused more change in the world than anybody else in the last thousand years? What do you think his last words are? His last words are, we are beggars. This is true. In other words, at the end of the day, all I am is somebody empty, somebody broken, somebody without what it takes, somebody who is unrighteous, who has discovered the righteousness of God and the power of God that is given as a gift in the gospel. And what I commend is nothing else. I don't commend my leadership or my accomplishments. I just give you Jesus. I just give you the gospel because in that gospel is the power to heal your marriage, to transform your kids, to set the captive free and to redeem your soul from sin and set you on the path of eternity. So Paul says, that's my boast. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And then he kind of drops the mic. Right, kind of feel like at this point I'm supposed to fall down on the stage and our worship leaders are supposed to come make their way over top of me, but I'm not going to do that. But what it is, is you ending with the gospel. A mighty fortress is our God and his power is made available, not through technique, not through knowledge, not through skill, but through simple faith that he has done everything necessary to save you and everything necessary to redeem you and transform your life with the power of resurrection. When we bow our heads at all of our campuses right now, can we end boasting in the gospel? Can you rejoice right now that Christianity is not due, that Christianity is done, D-O-N-E, and that by believing that, by receiving it, by resting in it, the power of new creation is released in and through you. God, we boast a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. God, make us a people mighty in the gospel and weak in ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. You keep your heads bowed and our worship teams will come in a minute and they'll lead us.